Let's bow your heads with me once more as we go to the Lord in prayer to ask his blessing on the preaching of God's word. Let's pray. Father, you say, return to you void. But like the rain that waters the grass and causes things to grow, your word will accomplish all of your good purposes that you have sent it to accomplish. So we pray now that you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us together and in this community, in this church, through the proclamation of your word. May it be known to us and to those around us that the word that we preach is not our own, but that it is your word, and that it is life-giving, it is heart-breaking, it is life-renewing, It is revealing, convicting, convincing, encouraging, comforting, consoling, strengthening. Do these things so that Jesus would be magnified among us, that more and more unbelievers would become believing, that they would know Jesus Christ for who he is, that they would acknowledge his death for what it really meant. So that Jesus would have a church of people from every tribe and tongue and nation would worship him in spirit and in truth. Renew our own faith as we hear your word preached today. For Jesus' sake, amen. Over the past few years, we have seen an uptick in socially or culturally prominent deaths might be racially charged, it might raise some kind of public safety concern, or maybe a mental health issue. Whatever the case, we want that death to mean something. We want it to lead to change. And often, we want that death to save other lives by how that death is remembered. And in many of those cases, we want to be the ones to make that death mean something to others by the way we respond to it. This morning, if you'll turn with me to John 19, verse 17, we will hear John's eyewitness testimony to Jesus' death. John says outright in John 19, 35, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. So John is very clear. He's not trying to keep his intentions hidden. He wants us to believe something about this death. The question is, believe what? Just that it happened? Just as part of history? John wants you to believe about Jesus and his death what he believes about Jesus and his death. But is John just trying to make Jesus' death mean something himself by his own writing, by his own power? Or is John trying to emphasize that the way Jesus died actually meant something objective 
for the significance of his death. Well, to encourage our belief, John recounts his own testimony in a way that raises three questions about Jesus and the way he died. And these three questions are going to structure our time in God's Word together this morning. First, who is Jesus? Who is he? Is he a criminal? Or is he king of kings? Second question, who's writing about Jesus is right? Did Pilate write what's right about Jesus? Or did the prophets write what's right about Jesus? And finally, who satisfies or obeys Scripture? Is it the Jews who killed Jesus? Or is it Jesus himself who's dying? And John weaves all three of these questions all the way through the text. So it's not really linear in the way that we're used to thinking about hearing preaching. It's more of a portrait that he's drawing all the way through. And all three of these questions are leading us to answer one ultimate question. Who do we believe Jesus to be? And what did his death mean? It's clear from chapter 19, verse 35, that John wants you to believe his own eyewitness testimony. He's the one who's bearing testimony. And he wants you to believe his interpretation and understanding of that testimony. In light of Scripture's testimony to Jesus in the Old Testament Psalms and Prophets. So just to be clear, what we are reading is eyewitness testimony to the real time-space history, death of Jesus. And at the same time, he's making an argument about the meaning of that history. This happened. But that's not all John wants you to believe. He wants you to ask the question, what does it mean that this happened? So this is history with a particular significance for the present and for the future, even for eternity. So let's get started answering our questions. But before we do, let's read the text to hear it in its own voice. John 19, verses 17 through 42. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but... Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that, was, that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth that you also may believe For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, and as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been yet laid. Because of the Jewish, so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So the first question has to do with identification. Who is Jesus? Is he a criminal or is he king? Many of the characters identify Jesus differently throughout our passage. Verse 19, Pilate identifies Jesus as a pretender. He writes an inscription and puts it on the cross. This was normal Roman practice for condemning criminals. When you crucified someone, you usually hung a sign around the victim's neck that announced why he was being crucified, and that would be a deterrent to anybody else who was thinking about committing a similar crime. And Pilate's inscription for Jesus has a sarcastic edge to it. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This happened right outside Jerusalem, maybe a thousand feet or so from Herod's palace where Pilate would have been staying as he visited there to conduct government business, and it would have happened on a major road Quintilian, the first century Roman rhetorician, said, and I quote, whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. For penalties relate not so much to retribution as to their exemplary effect, end quote. So this is why the inscription was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, at least from Pilate's perspective, so that every single traveler would read it and know, you better not do that. Compared to Jerusalem, and especially compared to Rome, Nazareth was a backwater. When I lived in eastern North Carolina as a kid, there was a sign off a main road that had an arrow to the right, and the town name that it was directing you to was Tickbite. There's a town in North Carolina called Tickbite. That's how Pilate viewed Nazareth. That's how Pilate viewed anybody who is from Nazareth. 
I'm sure you can imagine what it might be like to meet someone from Tickbite, North Carolina. You might not be able to understand them very well. And you might make fun of their accent. That was Nazareth compared to Jerusalem and especially compared to Rome. To Pilate, Jesus is a nobody from nowhere, foolishly claiming some kind of royalty. And it got him crucified. A king of the Jews, air quotes, from a tick-bite town like Nazareth. And in Pilate's mind, he's thinking, yeah, right. King of the Jews might as well have had sarcastic quotes around it. King of the Jews, look what the king has come to. This is what you get when you claim to be a king and you're from Nazareth. Rome is going to tell you what's what. Let this be a warning to anybody else who would be so foolish as to claim royal aspirations in a Roman province. This is what Rome does to people who claim to be kings. And yet John thinks that Pilate wrote far better than he realized. The Jews identified Jesus as a con. Of course, this title irks the Jews, so they asked Pilate to rewrite it. I mean, it's in such a prominent place. It's right on I-90 in Jerusalem. Everybody can see it. It's a billboard. And all these Jews are looking at it saying, King of the Jews... Well, what in the world? That's not how we view him. So they call Pilate and say, look, don't call him king of the Jews. Don't put that as the sign. Put this man said, I am king of the Jews. We didn't say that about him. He said that about him. He's not our king. The Jews want to make sure everyone knows that. That at least from their perspective, Jesus was a con man, a liar, a blasphemer, a heretic, and a traitor to Rome. They don't want anything to do with anybody saying that Jesus was their king because they don't want to end up on that cross like Jesus. So don't give him the honor of the title, no matter how sarcastically you mean it, Pilate. Make sure everybody knows we think he was a fraud, but Pilate doesn't budge. What I have written, I have written. Hey, I'm the king. I'm not changing that for you. In fact, I kind of mean it to spite you. Uh, This is what you get when you claim that you have any other king but me, or when any of you claim that you might be in competition with me. The soldiers identify Jesus as a criminal. They crucify him like a common criminal between two other common criminals. You realize what's happening. Jesus' execution is being multitasked. He's just the next criminal to be crucified. They see nothing at all unique or special about him. Roman law allowed for soldiers to confiscate whatever an executed criminal had on him at the time, which for Jesus wasn't much. So they take all his clothes, divide them amongst the four of them, but Jesus' outer tunic 
was pretty nice. It was seamless, all woven from a single piece of fabric, so that would have been more valuable. And the soldiers recognized it as a nice piece of clothing. And so instead of cutting it up, they gamble for it. Roll the dice, see who gets it. So the soldiers see Jesus as nothing more than a criminal, and then they treat him like one as he's on the cross. But John presents these soldiers as totally unaware of the gross injustice of all of this. They are oblivious to what it is that's ultimately driving their own behavior. Why were they doing this according to John? Because Scripture said something, that's why. Do they realize that? They have no clue. No clue. The leaders identified Jesus as cursed. As soon as Jesus had died, the Jewish leaders got antsy. After all, the Sabbath was about to start that weekend, and this wasn't just any Sabbath. This was the Passover Sabbath. It was a high Sabbath. This wasn't just any Saturday. It was a high holy Saturday. A festival Sabbath. Passover at that. So they're thinking about Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord is giving you for an inheritance. That's what they're trying to avoid, defiling the land. Hey, we got to get his body down off the cross, because if we don't, we're going to defile the land. Wow. That's how they're thinking about his crucifixion. That's how they're thinking about purity. That's how they're thinking about justice and righteousness and holiness before God. Get his body down off the cross so that we don't defile the land. I mean, how many ways can you be wrong? I mean, if they're going to crucify someone, they want to do it clean, righteous, legal. Leave a corpse hanging overnight... It's going to defile the land, at least as they understand it. So they view Jesus as cursed. They've got to get his cor- cursed corpse off the, off the tree so that they can stay ceremonially clean to celebrate the Passover with everybody else. How righteous of them. John is expecting you to see that irony and the self-righteousness and hypocrisy of it. But there are two Jews, wealthy Jewish aristocrats, Jewish leaders. One of them, at least, is a member of the Sanhedrin, and they think differently about Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus identify Jesus as king. We know from Matthew 27, 57, that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. That's why he has access to his own private garden tomb, Matthew 27, 60 says he himself owned this tomb where he buried Jesus. Mark 15, 43 tells us Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, the council that condemned Jesus to death. But we also know from Luke 23, 51 that this same Joseph who was on the Sanhedrin was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action to execute Jesus. So Joseph... Of Arimathea was part of the minority report of the Sanhedrin. 
He voted against crucifying Jesus. Now, just voting that way was courage enough. That, that took enough courage. Siding with a condemned man could have landed him in really big trouble. I mean, you, you just don't side with a crucified man. That's not wise. That's not safe. That's not common sense. You stay away from being identified with a crucified man. You want to end up crucified? Huh? Common sense tells you. Self-protection tells you. Maybe wisdom would have told Joseph of Arimathea, maybe it's time to lay low. Maybe it's time to go underground. Not him. Joseph comes forward just at this point publicly to ask Pilate for Jesus' body. And he doesn't do it anonymously. He does it personally. Pilate gives the body to him. And that takes even more courage. So here now, Joseph finally goes public with his faith in Jesus. He had been a disciple of Jesus, but only secretly for fear of his fellow Jewish leaders subjecting him to the same kind of punishment that they subjected Jesus to. His vote against crucifying Jesus was a partial public siding with Christ, but now after Rome has executed Jesus as if he were guilty of treason, nailed him to a cross, Joseph now approaches Pilate to ask Jesus, ask for, for Jesus' body so he can give him a proper burial. Risky. Really, really, really risky. I mean, you think about who he's asking. This is Pilate. Pilate is not exactly a principled governor. Joseph has no idea how Pilate's going to act in response to this. I mean, Pilate's a total pragmatist. He's already shown his colors. He could fly off the handle. Say, you know what? No, you're crazy, and why don't we take you to the cross as well? But Joseph takes his courage in his hands, trusts God's providence, and does the right thing publicly. He sides with Jesus. There's no mistaking what he's doing here. Pilate gives him the body, and Joseph takes it to the new garden tomb where nobody had ever been laid. And there at the tomb was Nicodemus, who had brought a hundred Roman pounds of burial spices, about 75 pounds in our measurements today, That's a lot of spices. In fact, that's not just generous. And it's not just expensive. This is totally lavish. It is over the top. It is way, way, way over the top. When Mary anointed Jesus' feet in John 12, it was one pound, one pound of pure nard that would have cost about 300 denarii, 300 days' wages of a day laborer 
in a field. So most of a year's wages for one pound of perfume. This is a hundred Roman pounds, more in the neighborhood of 30,000 denarii. 30,000 days wages. So Nicodemus is a wealthy man. If this were to happen today, if someone did this today, we would have to think of them liquidating significant assets in order to afford to do this. Like, this is not the kind of money you just have laying around in a savings account even. You got to liquidate for this. This is selling stock expensive, even for a wealthy man. You are raiding your 401k to bury a crucified man. And only elite few could afford to do this. It wasn't completely unheard of. It's recorded that another Jew burned 80 pounds of spices to honor the Jewish ruler Gamaliel I at his death. So other people would do this, but it was very rare and hardly anybody could afford to do this kind of thing. What you're looking at is a burial fit for a king. Pilate put king of the Jews in sarcastic quotation marks, but not Joseph and not Nicodemus. They identify Jesus as a king by burying him like a king. And what about John? How does John identify Jesus? How does John want us to identify Jesus Well, John identified Jesus as promised atonement for our sins. Look there in verse 17. He went out bearing his own cross all by himself. Then in verse 30, Jesus says, it is finished, begging the question, what is finished? In verses 34 to 35, when the soldier pierces Jesus' side, at once there there came out blood and water. And it's at that point that John interprets and verifies his own testimony. He who saw it, saw this whole thing from the beginning to the end all culminating in the blood and the water gushing out of his side. The one who saw all this is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. Well, may believe what? What John saw and how he interpreted what he saw. That Jesus carried the cross, not of his own condemnation, but of our condemnation all by himself, that he carried it willingly. He carried it alone for us, without us. That Jesus' condemnation was injustice on a cosmic scale. Totally ironic, without anybody who was involved in it realizing how ironic it really was. That Jesus was cursed not for his own sin, but for our sin. John wants us to believe that the blood and water that flowed from Jesus' side atoned for our sins, cleanses our corruption, made a whole new way for the release of God's spirit of holiness and truth to live in our hearts by faith. He wants us to believe that the blood and water that flowed from Jesus' side fulfilled Zechariah 13.1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That's what John wants you to believe. 
He doesn't just want you to believe that Jesus died. He wants you to believe that this is why Jesus died, because this is how Jesus died. And John wants us to believe Jesus when Jesus said, It is finished. What is finished? Obedience to all that the moral law required of us in both its command and curse, its precept and its penalty. That is what is finished. All that the ceremonial law foreshadowed in its priesthood and sacrifice, that is what is finished. All that was necessary to redeem helpless sinners, it is finished. All that God has done to redeem your sinful, sin-addicted soul is finished. That is finished. It's over. Sinner, you do not need to redeem yourself because you cannot redeem yourself. Only God can redeem yourself. Only He can do it. Only Jesus can do that. And He did it. God knew that you needed that, and so he sent Jesus to finish all by himself all that was necessary to save you from the power and penalty of your sins. John wants you to believe that, that Jesus really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when it was finished, Jesus bowed his head and voluntarily, sovereignly, willingly, handed over his spirit just like he said he would. Pilate did not take Jesus' life from him. The Jews did not take Jesus' life from him. The soldiers did not take Jesus' life from him. No one took Jesus' life from him. Jesus laid down his life of his own accord, because he is the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. He has authority to lay it down, and he has authority to take it up again, because as the Son of God, he had that charge from God the Father himself. Chapter 10, verse 17. God sent Jesus to lay down his life, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so Jesus is not a criminal. He is king. Second, the issue and question of inscription. Whose writing about Jesus is relevant and right? Whose writing about Jesus interprets rightly how he died and why? Is it Pilate's writing or is it the prophet's writing? There's a play on words here that is lost in translation, but you can still see it in the subject matter and in the concepts. Pilate wrote something sarcastic about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. The Jews told him, write something different. And Pilate says, no, what I have written, I have written. That's a lot of writing language. And for the rest of the scene, John refers not to what Pilate wrote, but what Scripture wrote about how Jesus would die. And that contrast, Pilate's inscription 
versus what is inscripturated of the Messiah in the Old Testament confronts us with the question, whose writing about Jesus is authoritative, Pilate's or the prophet's? Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. Well, that sounds tough, doesn't it? Sounds powerful. No, I'm not rewriting what I wrote. What I wrote, I wrote. Go home. This is over. I ended this when I wrote that inscription. I don't write things twice. I write them once. Tough guy. But by relating Jesus' death to what the Old Testament had written about the Messiah's death at every point, John effectively says, no, no, no. What God has written, God has written. And that will carry the day, and that will create the significance of Jesus' death. And that will interpret it for us rightly. Verse 24, the soldiers gamble for Jesus' clothes only to fulfill God's word in Scripture from Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In verse 28, Jesus mentions his own thirst to fulfill the Scripture in Psalm 69, 21. In verse 36, the soldiers refrain from breaking Jesus' legs only to fulfill Exodus 12 about not breaking the bones of the Passover lamb. In verse 37, they pierce Jesus' side instead only to fulfill Zechariah 12.10. They will look on him whom they have pierced. In other words, John is overriding Pilate's inscription with the sincere affirmations of Scripture. Pilate can write whatever he wants, but it will not interpret why and how Jesus died and the significance of that death. Scripture will determine that. It is not Pilate's word about Jesus that is final. It is God's word about Jesus that is final. God gets the last word. It is prophetic Scripture, not Pilate's inscription that announces who Jesus is and interprets the meaning of his death before it ever even happened. And that means Jesus himself is God's final word, made flesh, given for us and for our salvation. And the same question presents itself today. Who has written rightly about Jesus? Those who treat Jesus as a fraud, as an irrelevance, as a mistaken religious leader, or those who treat him as the fulfillment of Scripture? Whose word will you believe about Jesus? Many people say today that Jesus does not treat our sin very seriously or that it matters very little to him how you live. But friend, look at what he did about our sin. He suffered crucifixion for it. Have you ever read anything about the experience of crucifixion? Have you ever taken the trouble? Have you ever dared to disturb yourself with the physical tortures of crucifixion? Who would be crucified willingly 
simply to prove a point or perpetuate a lie. And how could he possibly accept the worship of all religions when those religions do not agree about the significance of his death or even the divinity of his own person? I mean, you are not God. You are just a person. And you don't accept relationship from anybody based on however they want to think about you, do you? You will be thought of in the way that you want to be thought of or you will not have the relationship with the person. Yes, yes. And Jesus deserves that consideration and more. Friend, maybe you are the one who has written Jesus off. That's just what Pilate did. Pilate literally wrote him off as a fraud. And you will either side with Pilate or with the prophets. There's no middle ground. You can't be agnostic on this. You're not allowed to be. You can't punt. This truth forces your hand. You, you will either let Jesus be crucified and thought of as a criminal, or you will go and get his body. You realize that Joseph of Arimathea is putting the other disciples, the 11, to shame, coming out like he's doing. Pilate thought he was right to write what he did about Jesus, and he would not recant it. What I've written, I've written. And this whole narrative testifies that what God has written, God has written. And what, he, what is written has been fulfilled in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. God's word governs reality no matter what man says. You see all over the place today, all mankind is demanding, my word creates and governs reality for me. But the way John is relating the death of Jesus is teaching us, no, God's word from the Old Testament governs how reality plays out. Not my word, God's word. It was God's word that sent Jesus to that cross, not Pilate's or the Jews. And it is God's word that makes Jesus' death mean something. Not my word, not the word of some Christian, the word of God. God sent Jesus to the cross for us and for our salvation from the never-ending horrors of hell. And that's why Jesus had to die on a cross to suffer such a horrific death in order to show the kind of death and hell that our sins deserve. It was the only way of dying that could possibly approximate or visualize the ongoing horrors of hell. And it's that death, the suffering of God's righteous wrath over our sins that Jesus tasted on the cross for all those who will turn from their sins and trust Him. 
There's an ancient graffiti drawing of a man's body with a donkey's head crucified on a cross. And the caption reads, Alexa Menos worships God. In other words, it's a depiction, a derogatory depiction of Jesus on the cross. And some pagan guy's Christian friend worshiping what the graffitist is depicting as a donkey of a man, crucified. It's a mocking parody of Christianity, and many people feel the same way about Christ and Christians still today. They view it as intellectual suicide, foolishness, scandal. They cannot believe a 21st century person would actually submit himself to a 1st century Jewish peasant crucified for treason, written of 2,000 years ago in a religious text. I mean, how backward can you be to actually organize your life by what such a man says and what such a text demands? How can you possibly believe in Genesis 1? How can you actually submit to the Christian ethic of sex being reserved for one man and one woman in lifelong marriage when the culture is going the way it's going today? Are you stupid? How can we possibly think in our global village that God would ever send people to hell who don't trust in this crucified Christ? Are you a bigot? This all seems so backward, even barbaric to many people today. But it seemed backward in Paul's day too. One scholar wrote that when Paul wrote, when Paul spoke in his mission preaching about the crucified Christ. Every hearer in the Greek-speaking East between Jerusalem and Illyria knew that this Christ had suffered a particularly cruel and shameful death, which as a rule was reserved for hardened criminals, rebellious slaves, and rebels against the Roman state. That this crucified Jew, Jesus Christ, could truly be a divine being sent on earth, God's Son, the Lord of all, and the coming judge of the world must inevitably have been thought by any educated man to be utter madness, and presumptuousness. Let me get this right. You're, you're, you're worshiping a crucified criminal. I don't think I have room in my life for you. I have no use for you. What this means for us today is precisely what the apostle emphasized when he wrote to the Hebrews in chapter 13. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And here's the application. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In other words, remaining loyal to this Jesus will often mean being rejected by our own Christ-rejecting culture. Get used to it. You can't be a Christian and not go outside the camp to Jesus, to bear his reproach with him. 
to own the crucified Christ of Scripture in our own day will mean that we will bear the reproach with him. We will have to learn to be okay with being excluded and rejected with Jesus. The world rejects the Christ we own. We own him as the only son of God and savior, the crucified king who excludes all other religions and all the other objects of worship. We own him as the only Lord of the conscience over our sexuality, over our money, over our time, over our thoughts and opinions about the world, over our entertainments, our habits, our purity of speech. And we go to him outside the safe confines of current cultural consensus to agree with Jesus in the way that we think about God's holiness and his expectations of us, about human nature, about human origins, about human sin, about human sexuality, about the hell that our sins deserve, about the person and work and meaning of Jesus and his call for all people everywhere now to repent of their sins and of themselves and to be reconciled to God in Christ. Christian Jesus went outside the gate for us. When was the last time you were outside the gate for him? How long has it been since you went out to him and bore his reproach? Or do you think you can be a Christian without doing that? Are you trying? Is that your aim? Will you really dare nothing for this Christ? Will you really risk nothing for him? When he gave his life to such a shameful death, for your salvation. We cannot avoid it. Christianity has always been an outsider movement because Jesus suffered outside the gate. And that is where we must go to him because here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We will be insiders for all eternity. For now we are outsiders to much of what the culture around us loves and respects. Third and finally, the question of righteousness. Who satisfies Scripture? Who obeys Scripture here, the Jews or Jesus? Throughout John's testimony to Jesus' death, there's one more thread that's contrasting Jesus and the Jews, and the fabric of that thread is obedience to Scripture. Who is obeying God's word here? The Jews or Christ on the cross. Now the Jews think they are obeying Scripture by executing Jesus for claiming to be God and King. In fact, they are putting the true and eternal Son of God to open shame. They are dishonoring God's authority by disowning the true King of Israel. But even as Jesus is hanging and dying on the cross, He honors not only His heavenly Father in His suffering, He also honors His earthly mother in, mother in providing for her. The only Disciples, John records, as present at Christ's cross are a few women, one of whom is Jesus' own mother, and the disciple Jesus loved, who is John the Evangelist, writing this book. Jesus, in the final agonies of his death, entrusts his mother to John the Evangelist. Jesus is the one honoring every authority over him, 
even while those who crucified him do not. But the way Jesus does this is very telling. Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. For starters, this passage refutes any Roman Catholic claim that Mary can possibly be a mediatrix for humanity or is somehow the unique mother of the church who nurtures us from above. You can't use this text to make that point. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is not entrusting the disciple to Mary's care. He is entrusting Mary to the disciple's care. She becomes part of John's household, not the other way around. She needed Jesus' shepherding care just as much as we do. And Christian, mark this well. He who did not forget his mother while he was on the cross will not forget his brothers and sisters while he is in glory. Christian, what a sweet record right here of Christ's tender and thoughtful care for all of those who stand at the foot of his cross. If Jesus took thought for his mother in his last agonizing moments on the cross, then how will he possibly forget his trusting brothers and sisters in the splendor of his glory? He's not going to forget about you. He cannot forget you, Christian. Your name is written on his hands. He bled for you. And is he going to forget you? Never. Never. Literally in a million years, never in all eternity will he forget you. He knows and he recognizes Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Do not let that ransom sinner die. Do you think Jesus has better things to do in heaven than plead for your sinful soul? He does not have better things to do. That's why he rose from the dead in your common human flesh, to be your intercessor, to be the mediator between God and man, to do that mediating work for you. That's why he's there. He will not forget you. He will come and he will get you. He will take you back with himself. He will bear you over safely to that farther shore. He will make sure that you do not taste death as he tasted it for you. So come to the cross, Christian, again and again and again and again. Come to Christ. Touch his wounds here. Look at his side. He bears the marks of his love for you still. He was literally born for this. And if he did all this for you, then whatever you're worried about, whatever you're anxious about, whatever you're scared about, whatever you don't know what to do about, you don't think he cares about that too? You don't think he cares about your daughter that's wayward? You don't think he cares about the cancer that's coming back? You don't think he cares about the bill you can't pay? He cares about all of it. He sees all of it. He sees it all. He knows. And he will do something about it. 
He loves you. There's nothing more he can do to prove it. You must want to pray to this Christ. You must want to love him. You must want to trust him. Yet Jesus, entrusting his mother's care, mother to his, the care of his disciple, remains also one of the earliest illustrations of what it means to be a church family. Look at the relationship that he is creating between John and his mother. It's horizontal. Spirit is thicker than blood. Some of you have discovered this or are in the process of discovering it firsthand. Where you realize, I don't have the kind of relationship with my own blood family that I do with my best friends in this church. We are all brothers and sisters, dads and sons, mothers and daughters, aunts and uncles, nieces and nephews to each other in Christ. When we stand together at the foot of the cross trusting in his sacrifice, worshiping him for his holiness and love, relying on him to represent us in his death, we become family with one another. He makes us that way. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. Look around. This is your family. The Christians love for one another is not based on affinity or personality or hobbies or similarities or demographics. It is based on common love and trust of the crucified Christ Jesus who honored his heavenly father to the death, who honored his earthly mother even in death. We who own the king of Israel also own those who submit to him as his loyal subjects. This is why you can't be indifferent to each other. This is why you cannot fail to love each other. You can't claim to be a Christian if you don't care what happens to each other, if you don't care that somebody's not here three or four weeks in a row and you don't know why. That's not being a Christian. Jesus on the cross says to those who are standing at the foot of his cross, behold your son, behold your mother. And not just for once, For all time, this is a remaining care that he creates because of his death. If you remain indifferent to other Christians, especially other Christians in your own local church, you don't know why Christ died. You don't know what he created. You don't have any idea how good and how great and how generous his death is, his gospel is, because it's creating for you not just a relationship with him, but a relationship with everybody here. And if you're not interested in that, I'm not sure you're interested in the same Christ that we're preaching. This is why the local church is so central to the Christian life and to being a Christian. Because that's what Jesus creates. That's what the gospel creates. It doesn't just create a fountain welling up in your heart to eternal life. It does that. But it does that for other people too. And then it creates tributaries between those fountains, relationships that mutually nourish you and encourage you. This is why we're doing the discipleship class in the Sunday school, so that you understand 
how do I make disciples? How do I encourage other disciples of Christ? And why should I view that as central to my Christian life and not just peripheral or extra credit? It's because of what Jesus said on the cross, what he created when he died. He didn't just create new life in you. He created new relationships for you based on faith in his blood. This contrast between who obeys Scripture also extends to who is actually observing the Sabbath. The Jews are egregiously breaking the Sabbath by judicial murder of Christ. Yet they intend to keep the Sabbath by making sure that Jesus' corpse doesn't hang there too long? Wow. How unself-aware can you be? And these are men, mind you, who know Scripture way better than you know it, or I know it. Could you have quoted Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23? Are you concerned with that? They were. By contrast, Jesus dies the death we deserve to die for our sins so that on the merits of his life and death, we might be ushered into God's eternal Sabbath rest with Christ. They're violating the Sabbath. He's creating our enjoyment of the Sabbath for us. The Jews intend to obey Deuteronomy 21 so that the land is not defiled by a cursed corpse hanging there especially on a high Sabbath day during Passover, but in reality, it is the Jews themselves who are defiling the land with Jesus' innocent blood. And it's Jesus alone who can purify our hearts with that same blood. You see how easy it is for our perception of justice and injustice, our perception of ourselves to be skewed and biased, The Jews are indeed fulfilling Scripture, that's for sure. This is not at all in the way that they think. They're not obeying Scripture. They are fulfilling the prophecy of killing the Christ from Zechariah 12.10. They will look on Him whom they have pierced. You're piercing Him. And you think you're obeying Deuteronomy 23. Remarkable. They think they're satisfying the Sabbath while they're killing the Christ. Friends, all this... All these questions still confront us today. Who was Jesus, criminal or king? Who writes rightly of Jesus? Those who write him off or the prophets who wrote of him before he ever even lived? And who is really good? Who's really obedient? Who's really loving? Who's really just and righteous? Those who want Jesus to remain dead or Christ himself who loved us and gave himself for us? What did Jesus accomplish in his death? John wants you to believe that he accomplished our redemption. He carried not only his son to the cross, he carried, the, he carried not only his own cross, he carried the cross that should have been ours. Jesus literally did nothing to deserve this. It was my sin, your sin, that deserves such a punishment. He died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And it was on this day... In John 19, that Jesus opened a fountain for sin and uncleanness in the blood and water that flowed from his side. Who but Christ had dared to drain, steeped in gall, the cup of pain, with tender body, bare, thorns and nails and piercing spear, 
Slain for us the water flowed, mingled from your side with blood, signed to all the testing eyes of the finished sacrifice. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Lamb of God for sinners slain. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ, we praise your name. And to think that he did all of this willingly, voluntarily. Nobody took his life from him. Jews handed him over to Pilate. Pilate handed him over to be crucified. All that is true. But Jesus is the one who bowed his head and handed over his own spirit. And only after that, excuse me, only then, only because he could say it is finished, did he hand over his spirit. This is not mere exemplary love. There's no mere victory over the powers of darkness. It's not merely a repayment to God for his cosmic justice or dishonor. It is all that and more because it is fundamentally atonement for our sins. It is the God-man Christ Jesus suffering the wrath of God for all the sins of all those who will ever look on his wounded side with faith in his sacrifice and repentance from sin and self. And this alone is why we can sing, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty sins. Dear dying lamb, your precious blood will never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. And friends, if we are to enter Jesus' kingdom, then he must be our king. We must treat him as Nicodemus treated him, worthy of everything we have. We must view ourselves not simply as his friends, but as his citizens, as the subjects of his righteous reign. Friend, is this Christ, the king of your thoughts, your appetites, your feelings and loves, your opinions or attitudes, or is he something else to you, something less, just an accessory? Melito, second, bishop, second century bishop of Sardis, expressed the irony of Jesus hanging on the cross. He said, he who hung the earth in its place hangs there. He fixed the heavens is fixed there. He who made all things fast is held fast upon the tree. The master has been insulted. God has been murdered. The king of Israel has been slain by an Israelite hand. Oh, strange murder. Strange crime. The master has been treated in an unseemly fashion, his body naked, not even deemed worthy of a covering that his nakedness might not be seen. And therefore the lights of heaven turned away And the day darkened that it might hide him who was stripped upon the cross. Either he is that to you, or he is a criminal. But there's nothing in between. Friend, you will have to say something about this Jesus, either in this life or in the next. Who is he? Is he a criminal? Or is he king? Who's written what's right about him? Those who treat him as a pretender? Those who wrote him, wrote of him as savior and king? And who really pleases God? Jesus himself or a culture that sends him outside the gate? John the evangelist has testified in writing to the truth and meaning of Jesus' death so that you might believe. So you know what John has said about Jesus. Now, what do you say about him? Let's pray together.
Father, we are sorry for our sins that made it so necessary for you to send your own beloved son, Christ Jesus, to die the excruciating death of the cross that we deserved. We acknowledge him. He is your son. He is the God-man. He is Messiah. He is Savior, Lord, King, Priest, Prophet, all in one. So may we believe and trust that your word has testified to him rightly. May we treat him and submit to him as our king. May we obey him. May we be righteous as he is righteous. May we not be afraid to go to him outside the camp to bear the reproach that he endured. For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen.